Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio with Michael. As we are continuing our series on why America is losing its mind, now we are recording point number seven of 11 that I had typed out. Cultural Christianity is slowly dying off. I'm excited for this. I think this may be one of our more interesting discussions. I look forward to seeing what Michael will have to bring to it. Um, If I might, Michael, I would like to commend myself. Um, I have now recorded with you seven episodes and a winging it in the last few weeks. Yeah, it's been, uh, as I told my wife, I said, Wade's, Wade's, you know, being a productive human being, so I got to (laughs) go. Yeah. and uh, got a couple produced. Yeah. Abigail has done a lot, which is now, good. Now I just have to convince. Get them posted. I had to get the other person that won't do anything if I tell them what to do. Abigail to do something. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like we're on a we're on a roll. Yep. And I I thank the listeners too. I've been checking, and it looks like uh, you all will download stuff when we put it out. <laughs> and so I thank you for doing that. I got a <coughs> excuse me a bit of a frog. In my throat, my allergies have been going nuts because Wisconsin can't decide what season it is yep, in. Nope, it's been very mild. Yeah, and so uh, although we're getting snow and rain tonight and tomorrow, very quickly right here. So I should have got the snowblower fixed and tuned up. I'm, I do. I have that every year. That's my project in October. Yeah, it's usually my project. About six inches into our first right. big snow. So what you should do right now is put in your calendar phone a reminder in late october to do this and then when that reminder comes do it yeah we'll see maybe i'll try that you know next to that you should say go get my annual checkup at the doctor yeah maybe what if there's a doctor who also fix snowblowers you know my the the i'm gonna find a shop called the snowblower doctor and then while he fixes my (laughs) snowblower i'll just tell him some stuff you want to can you can you check the oils over here yeah. too? Um, funny story that my the doctor who delivered child number two for us um, was in the army, but this is also rural Minnesota too. And uh, he kind of played farmer a little bit, and he had a friend that was allowed him to go with him in the combine. And so when he came to check in before he scrubbed up before we were going to give before my wife is going to give birth to Noel he was literally in like farm hunter orange nice. kind of whatever so yeah. there are guys out there who can play in both realms nice yeah. Yeah. um well i won't go too long on our intro if we even have you even mentioned the title of what I we did okay we did all right that's how i got to this okay and uh and so as we make our way into it um, just for a little bit of review, for those who might be jumping in, who have neglected to listen to the previous episodes, <clears throat> and if you have, don't worry, these are kind of standalones, you don't have to have heard the previous ones, um, but we've so far had uh, seven points, uh, counting today's. First, we're not liberals anymore, and we should be, uh, liberal there versus illiberal. <clears throat> we've forgotten history or never learned it. Uh, then three, dealt with partisanship, both in the media or in, and in daily life. Four, information overload we talked about and soundbite engagement. Five, um, the difference between online interaction and impersonal interaction and the challenges that arise with that. Six, we talked about the American population is getting dumber. And then again today, cultural Christianity 
is slowly dying off. Um, with that being said, Mike, I'll toss it to you. Maybe you want to mention 1517 and then get to our disclaimer. 1517.org has been generous uh, to allow us to be on their, um, their uh, website, their network of podcasts. They've been good to us. Um, have published a couple books for Wade, and I have a book coming out in April on vocation through them. Some academy courses. I just filmed an academy course on vocation with them down in Texas, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, but they have daily blogs, devotionals, lots of uh, books, and then quite a few podcasts. So uh, it's just <clears throat> it's just a place where you can get the gospel, right? And um, we say a lot that if you, uh, the gospel ignored is the gospel denied. And I think we all... I thought it was the, the gospel assumed. Assumed, excuse me, yeah, is the gospel denied. And looking back on our years in the pews, that is something that occurred. And maybe not, maybe not always assumed, but perhaps we preached about the gospel and instead of preaching the gospel. And we both fell into that trap, of course, as well. Here's a place where the gospel, I hate the word fresh because that, that, that had connotations of, you know, oh, now you're hip and cool. No, or, or you change something up. What I mean by that is that it's, it's actually the gospel, right? Instead of a kind of academic ec- exercise that you, that you, yes, I can, articulate what the gospel is. So 1517, I would say, is fairly unique when it comes to uh, media out there in the in the Christian world. There are other places, of course, like Mockingbird, um, that are along the same, same lines. They're not the only ones, but they are fairly unique. So 1517.org, go there. Um, you're going to find a lot of resources. Um, we should mention that this show does not speak for our churches or church bodies or our employers to be honest much or of the even time, for 1517 no to be honest much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us and i can guarantee you that wade never speaks for me we will be thinking out loud a lot so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because well as a responsible resident of planet earth that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything if you find yourself getting too worked up tune out look around and realize you were just listening to a podcast that's right a podcast So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. going to skip the free-for-all today and that will take us to our main topic where we are going to talk about the fact that cultural Christianity is slowly dying off and I'm guessing both Mike and I will note that in some ways uh, I think both of us think that is maybe a good thing 
right? Um, I will write the eulogy for that. Okay. So I just want to make sure I wasn't the only one who thought that. I want to start off um, by just recommending a good article by someone I consider to be a good friend that I think um, lay people as well, but especially pastors, would do well to maybe give a read. And it is from the uh, journal Logia, a journal of Lutheran theology, and it's Holy Trinity of 2016 is the issue, 25, volume 25, number three. It's a special issue because, uh, guess who's in there, Mike? Uh, you are. And who else? And I am. Yeah, this issue was entitled Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. And uh, Gene Veith leads things off with a, an article on God's presence in his temporal kingdom. Uh, Gene Veith, a fellow... Uh, fan of the doctrine of vocation, uh, someone I know you use his writings, a fair about Michael. Then page 13 is Michael Berg with Life, Liberty, and Flourishing. Page 19, Wade Johnston with We Must Obey God Rather Than Men, The Lutheran Legacy of Resistance. And then if you skip ahead a little bit, the article I would recommend to you today is on page 35. Um, Should We Rejoice in the End of Christendom? A Law Gospel Approach to the Rise of Western Secularism, and that is by my friend and the very gifted theologian, Jack Kilcrease. And Frederick Bowie's in this too, and I know you've never met him, but he's a, he's a hoot. Uh, well, then I'll take anyone that Mike thinks is a hoot, I'm a fan of. Um, I would say Jack is up there. Um, as far as my friends who just have a mind that you listen to and you go, wow, they are smarter than me. Um, two people I would I would say that of would be uh, my friend Jack Kilcrease and our friend Michael Adam Morton, and they are longtime friends, if I'm not mistaken, who go all the bit way back to their college days. If you can ever get those two talking together, um, back and you're going to learn a lot. You might not agree with everything, but you're going to learn a lot. And Jack has done a lot of really good work. He has a really good book on scripture that has come out through Luther Academy recently. Um, so I'd encourage you to check out that article. If we think of it, we will link it in the show notes. Um, but I've been doing the posting of stuff lately, and I'm pretty forgetful with that. So we'll see if Mike remembers to type it in there um, when he sends that to me. Um, but what we'll be talking about today is the death of cultural Christianity, which is, is kind of what Jack means when he talks about the end of Christendom, um, and what that means for the West and for the church. And What I mean by cultural Christianity here especially is just that it was a fairly safe cultural assumption for a long time that even if people were not believers, that they had been grounded in or their thought was to a good degree rooted in um, Christian assumptions or a Christian worldview that they were to some degree... uh, (coughs) biblically literate, um, and that Christian morality um, was uh, a driving influence, if not the predominant driving influence, um, in the morality of society as a whole. Um, Professor Deutschlander used to talk about that you could have a number of parents who, even if they themselves did not step foot in the church for the divine service, still felt that they should take little Johnny and Susie to Sunday school and drop them off and sit in their car and read their newspaper. This is not to say that there are not aspects of our culture that are still very informed and influenced by Christianity, 
Um, but I think it is to say that most would, many at least, would agree um, that it's not as safe an assumption um, that people are um, rooted in biblical concepts or a Christian worldview, um, that people default to Christian morality, uh, and even that most have a, even if they themselves are Christian, I don't think it's safe to assume that, that most even anymore have a soft spot for, a um, affinity for, even a tolerance for uh, Christian thought. When we talk about cultural Christianity, we are, in my opinion, not talking gospel, right? We are talking uh, primarily law. We are talking morality. Um, we are talking about the fact that the church was able to shape many cultural aspects, how people behaved, what legislation was passed, what corporations felt safe marketing, and how. Stuff like that. Is that are you yeah, going to agree not, with me on yeah. that, or do you? And not necessarily do this, don't do this kind of law, although that would play a part of it, but uh, just... Um, First use of law, not this second. Is, this is kind of how we do things, right. right? This is sort of how we do things. Here's some parameters, right? Merry Christmas and, on your coffee cup. Yep, and you can, if you can kind of just sort of float in this culture and say the right things and sort of have this loose sort of belief that there is a God and he sort of likes us and we should be good, um, <clears throat> that uh, you're going to be okay and you're going to be successful. Uh, some of it in our history would actually, I mean, be sort of dominant. Like if you were, if you were a uh, up-and-coming small business owner in mid uh, mid-century in a uh, average town in America. Mid-20th century, I mean, yeah. Yeah, uh, you, you probably would pick your church according to those needs. Um, I will, you know, the Presbyterian church is going to be, is gonna, I'm certainly not going to be an avowed atheist. Right. Um, you can still see this. Uh, there is, uh, if you are running for office. This still you wanted to be at today. least nominally Christian. I, I don't. I don't know about Ben Sass that much, but I know that he went from Lutheranism to, I believe, Presbyterianism. Yeah. And I have no doubt that at least part of the reason was I, he. I, I can't look into his heart, but I can't imagine that he didn't think about the political ramifications right. of that. Kind Although of I am move. a fan and on certain yeah, things about yeah. Ben Sass. So, and I'm not necessarily uh, blaming him or whatever. And in fact, he was a president of a. Of a college, yes, he was. So, uh, someone to look out for in the future. Yeah. Uh, not, I don't know if he was a never Trumper, but he certainly was critical. He's got at least one book that's worth reading too. Yeah. So, uh, someone to keep an eye on. Um, but, and I wonder if this. I don't like to have these big, overarching kind of themes. They can be helpful and sometimes not helpful. But in the Western world, the end of the Imperial Church era, maybe. Right. So think of pre-Constantine and post-Constantine, pre-Constantine, whereas we are, there was a threat of persecution, didn't always happen, but there was a threat. Um, after Constantine, it became politically advantageous yeah. to be Christian. And in many ways, cultural Christianity is a Constantinian worldview. Yeah. So uh, lots of ups and downs, obviously. Uh, it's too broad of a, a brushstroke. And you could go back, I'm sorry for interrupting you, Mike, mm -hmm. but... We did a winging, winging It series on church history, and there is one, if you go to our website, 
there is one on Constantine right. that might be worth listening to. So you have big changes, you know, the, the fall of Constantine, uh, you know, the fall of Rome, you have the Reformation, the Enlightenment, but none of those things really took away this idea of Christianity being the dominant cultural force in a specific region, save the Middle East, North Africa, and Constantine, Albania, and I would those say kind of places, where, where it was replaced by another religion. Right, especially in America. Post-World War I, you begin to have a, a lot of secularization that increases in speed in Europe, um, the rise of existentialism. Uh, but the culture's still there. Right. Um, but especially in America, this takes much longer to happen here, which is ironic because many of the places that it took place over time in Europe have state churches. Mm -hmm. um, but America, going back to de Tocqueville, right, has kind of had this, Christianity is kind of just embedded in its notion of what it is to be American so that, you know, troops go off to the world wars and they get a little pocket New Testament. Um, and the old, and I know my grandfather's from the, uh, uh, the second war, um, you know, with FDR having written something <clears throat> Uh, in it, right? This uh, just assumption um, that the majority of Americans are going to be at least nominally Christian. Yeah, and and part of that, I think it was Peter Berger who said, you know, America is um, uh, Indians, as in the nation of India, ruled by Swedes, right? <laughs> so ruled by the most <laughs> not religious people, um, even though they have the veneer of religion, you know, the state church by some of the most religious people, India being a very, very, uh, you know, high amount of people who are believers. So th there is that, that America is unique in that way. Um, uh, we kind of have talked about this just a little bit that God's uh, guns and country, you know, and, and or God we, singular. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of, we kind of think about that and maybe even at times kind of roll, yeah, roll our eyes at that a little bit. And then you kind of remember, well, what, do, it's not like, it's not like it was the elite of the elite coming over from Europe here. It was the hardworking, salt-of-the-earth, often religious-minded people. With that said, there needed to be two great awakenings, maybe more, to keep right. America's American religion. There was plenty of people that were, were not religious, and so it's not, it's, not, it's not the pilgrims were religious, and we have slowly become less religious over time. That's not the case. Right. What we're talking about here is that you could be Christian without really kind of being threatened, which meant that you never suffered for your confession. It was in many ways advantageous to be. It was it was it was uh, it was a setting where you benefited from being a fairly shallow cultural Christian. Yes, you benefited from that, and you also um, would not benefit if you would buck the system right. a little bit. And I would say you especially... Or if you became even serious about your right. confession. You were, yeah, you were especially benefited precisely because you were a somewhat shallow, platitudinal Christian. When you became too dogmatic, um, <clears throat> America's always had an uncomfortability um, with, with that. Maybe uh, as we get into cultural Christianity dying off, I'm, I don't think we want to get into in this episode the diagnostic of, of all the why this has happened <clears throat> because I think that can be an episode in and of itself and that would be a good one. Um, I have a couple guests in mind that we could do for that. Um, 
But I would say simply it's something that many Christians themselves obviously feel um, because it's it's uh, on full display in the hand-wringing amongst many Christians and those in Christian leadership. Um, I would say, for instance, uh, I was talking to someone the other day when we were talking about um, you know, the number of people today who fret about the death of Christian America and <clears throat> look to specific leaders to um, uh, at least delay it, uh, many of them who might be at rallies or out protesting, if you were to ask them if they were in church on Sunday, mm-hmm. they're not, and they haven't been for quite some time. Yeah, that was a frustrating part for me as being a pastor where we were definitely in a God country gun sort of mindset, which is not all bad. I mean, there was a there was a sense of duty, a sense of um, independence, I think, in a good way, although it could be a bad way. Um, it, it was not it was not a totally terrible thing. Nothing's totally terrible or totally or totally great um, when it comes to these culturals and the, the isms and the ologies that are out there. As we've said before, every ism and ology has a point, right, for the most part. Um, but what really bothered me was you don't get to throw around this God kind of stuff and go to your July 4th and your Memorial Day and your Veterans Day and profess this God when you have not been in church for 18 months. Um, it rings a hollow and it's very dangerous because you start to say, I'm pretty sure your God is actually sort of tied in with your civic. Right idea here and that's maybe a whole nother and with cultural christianity many, many ways we're talking about a civil religion yeah in, in in a lot of ways in a very dangerous in a very dangerous way because it it then starts to become my nation is is always right as if um what 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 the nation did was what god always wanted them to do and therefore what the nation does is right and we we don't have to apologize. We don't have to adjust. We don't have to think about other nations because it's us against the world. A lot of these things are can be very, very, very dangerous. And so I would say <clears throat> in a response to um, the threat of the death of cultural um, Christianity, or at least what people see as a threat inherent in that, <clears throat> there's been two main responses. And you see in a lot of books and um, videos and, and things published on both sides of this, and they both go back to ancient times. Um, there, were, there were those who wanted to seize upon Constantinian Christianity, especially many within the church hierarchy, that saw it as an opportunity to kind of make the culture Christian. Um, but there were also those whose temptation was to withdraw, for instance, the monastics. In our own day, as people feel threatened by the death of cultural Christianity, um, you have those who want to go the way of the Benedict option mm-hmm. and we just kind of withdraw and we do our things and we just leave the culture to itself and there's going to be those who want to social justice warrior um, for conservative Christian values, often in that order, conservative then, mm-hmm. then Christian. <clears throat> and, uh, and so you have culture war. Um, I would say from experience, many in mainline Protestantism and in uh, Lutheranism as a whole, who lean more conservative politically and probably lean more confessional theology have, since the 90s, probably, if not favored, at least felt some sympathies for the culture warrior side of things. 
Um, but I would say there's a growing number of people who are attracted to the Benedict option, right? <clears throat> and this is, right, we're going we're gonna to start our own schools and leave us alone, or we're going to homeschool. We're going to kind of live in the flyover states. Um, we're, we're not going to you know, try to raise much of a ruckus, but just let us do our thing. Both of those um, can in some ways be good paths on certain issues, if they were carried out with the, the proper intentions. Um, but they often both lead to a, a law approach and solution that loses sight of the gospel and forgets what it really is that gives the church life. Um, in both of those things, church largely becomes a legal community. For the culture warrior, it becomes a legal community that there is that is there basically to advocate for a societal um, ethic or morality that is in more in accord with traditional Christian morality. And the withdrawal aspect, it becomes a community um, gathered around a, a Christian ethos of perhaps pacifism or quietism, uh, whatever you want to, to make it to be. Um, and so where a Lutheran should be concerned with this is that in both approaches, we forget that it's the gospel and not culture which saves people, right? Yeah, I um, I was thinking about this the other day that, uh, not to take this in a different direction, we'll come back to it, but... I like tangents, go where you um, go. The separation of church and state, is that equal to Luther's two kingdoms? No, but there's a lot of similarities to it. Um, the impulses is right, that you shouldn't be mixing these two. And from both sides, you're like, I'm weary about the mixing, mixing of the two. Um, but when, when the average conservative cultural Christian person talks about the separation of church and state, um, often it is inconsistent, right? Um, I want it to be... Um, separate in this situation and not separate in that mm -hmm. in that situation. Although I think you can make a point that the original intent was that the state not mandate a religion, right? And right. but whatever. Originally, it was it. probably meant to protect churches right. more than to right. Yeah. And 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 so that there is there is more than I, to protect the state. I, I, I'm appreciative of of that viewpoint. But what they mean and where they're coming from and what they're grounded in is a personal freedom and individuality that is very American and fine. For Luther, he, he is not concerned about um, uh, libertarianism. He's not concerned about a political viewpoint. He is concerned about the gospel, that if you mix the two, the gospel gets lost. So when we're talking to our fellow cultural Christians, let's say, and every church has them, in fact, churches may be all but filled with them, and you talk about these issues of church and state, of Caesar, and, and all this kind of stuff, that right away you'll be able to pinpoint their motivation. And most likely it will not be so that the gospel can predominate it's so that I can maintain my way of life right now. I am we threatened. Can feel secure. Yeah. I am threatened by this whatever because it is a threat to my way of life. They're never even going to think, let alone articulate, that it's a threat to the gospel. And in fact, 
some of the stuff that comes from cultural Christian mouths, especially from the conservative side, but the liberal side as well, too, mm -hmm. are threats to the gospel in a, in a subtle way because this then becomes the predominant message to the skeptic of the Christian church. A social justice warrior, and we are both either left or right. This is what you... This is what Jesus meant when he, when he said, help the poor. You have to do this. Or, um, you know, if we just put the Ten Commandments um, the in courthouse. schools and the courthouses, then all of our problems would go away. There's not a lick of gospel there. There's not even a, there's not even a facade or a veneer. There's not even an attempt at what we know as the gospel. And the church and state thing versus the two kingdoms and the motivation, I think, couldn't be clearer and maybe is the difference between a truly confessional confessional faith that says we want the gospel to predominate and yes, we want to be good citizens, but our faith is not in a culture, in a, in a government or in a country. Uh, come Lord Jesus, come versus a cultural Christianity, which sees those two things mixed, and they are mixed, but sees the goal of Christianity to somehow affect the daily life of people, not by the gospel, but by either a subtle law or a very poignant, explicit law. Yeah, and if I can build on something you mentioned there, you brought up the idea of security, right? That the church wants to feel secure. And I would argue that in the cultural warriors we see on the left and on the right in Christianity today, um, that's the main goal for both. The cultural warrior on the right sees kind of the supremacy of cultural Christianity fading, uh, the influence, therefore, of Christian morality fading, and doesn't want to feel like an outsider or a bigot or you pick the word. Um, doesn't want to feel like a pilgrim in a land at which, uh, in which he or she very much felt at home before. But we are. Right. The, um, the social justice warrior on the left wants to feel secure and so takes the route of culture, please like me. Right. There's still a place for me here. The church can still be relevant. We are for all the things that you're for, and that's what we're about. In both cases, Jesus becomes largely... Um, either an afterthought or he becomes simply a symbol um, for the cultural fight. So is baby Jesus on a coffee cup or not? <clears throat> and we see this challenge already arise at the time of the Reformation. Luther did not want a state church, but he was forced to recognize the at least temporary need for note bischoff and for emergency bishops um, who were to undertake these visitations, help to establish the churches, but then Lord willing with time, step back and let the church be the church. Um, the Gnesio Lutherans very much saw um, this as being something the state was not doing and spoke out. Um, so Flatius and others. And so a development that took place in many of the Protestant areas of, um, of Europe was Erastianism, uh, which is just a term for you had state churches that were under the, the state. They were state supported. So still today, if you're a Protestant in Germany, um, you're officially registered as such, some of your taxes go to support the church there. If you're a Catholic, some of your taxes go to support the, the church there. And in that, and here, maybe if we can just talk about the ministerium, right? The ministerium especially finds some measure of security. 
So that even today, for instance, in England, where uh, attendance in Anglican churches is woeful, mm-hmm. right? Yet, you can still be a pastor of a parish that has terrible attendance with state support, at least to some degree. I think things are changing there. Um, but there's a measure of security. And people who never go to church all year might still come to hear the service of lessons and carols. And like Christmas. the idea of that having there's you there still a church that's for there. your wedding or for a baptism, because that's what we've always done. Right. Um, the State Church of Sweden, we see this. I believe that the church in Norway is no longer official um, in the same way it, it used to. It used to be. Um, but this sense of security has been a driving force in many ways. Now, in America, you didn't have state-supported church bodies. And as Mike mentioned, in many ways, the First Amendment was meant to protect churches more than protect the state from churches um, so that there would be freedom of conscience and freedom for, for churches to uh, um, practice their, their faith, both, both publicly and privately, I would say, because sometimes people try to put this purely in the, in the private realm. Um, but you had still a general approval of Christianity as a whole. So even if no one, someone never went to church, when you introduced yourself as the minister, there was a certain amount of respect that went with that. <clears throat> and that plays into, and I'm sure both of us have experienced this, Mike, this can play into your head of, um, I have in this town or in this neighborhood a bit of an exaltic status that people call me reverend or minister and they're not gonna cuss around me and I'm gonna be in- invited to important you know, local events. Um, I'm gonna be viewed as someone who is learned and whose knowledge has value even if people aren't interested in it. They're kind of glad you're there with it. And I think for, for those in the ministry especially, this death of cultural Christianity becomes um, personal and existential uh, in that Many don't like the feeling of losing that. Um, that now when I'm, intru- when I'm introduced as a theology professor, or as a minister, or as a pastor, I know in the back of my mind, that person might, they might not say it to my face, but they might be hostile towards me. Mm-hmm. Or they might think, why has he spent all this time studying fairy tales? Um, or they might even see me as a threat um, to their political ideals or hopes, not that I necessarily am, but I might not even get that that hearing. In many ways, Christian thought and morality has been relegated to the past. We hear this all the time. Are you gonna be on the right side of history? And when that is used nowadays, seldom is Christianity <clears throat> considered to be on the right side of, of history. And so there's a certain loss of legal, I mean law-based, cultural, um, prestige that can be uh, disconcerting to say the least. I mean, you throw in the um, the pedophilia, scan- pedophilia scandals and stuff like that too, and you may, you and I, if we're walking around in a collar, may have someone who mm-hmm. openly assumes we're a threat to their kids or, or, or something of that, that sort. Um, and so this also can be <sighs> troubling for people who went into the ministry with a good measure of confidence that at the very least they would always be respected even if people weren't joining um, their church. And wanting to be uh, respected can go a long way, and this is not unique to the ministry. Every profession has this. How many articles do we hear about the importance of teachers or journalists? 
when they feel threatened by um, societal shifts or funding issues or um, you know media changes and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that, I would uh, I'll toss it to you for Mike if you disagree with that or any thoughts you have on that. Yeah, I think for me it was a little bit different. I think um, coming of age outside of the Midwest, I didn't have this idea of hair pastor. Um, uh, in fact, I probably it was never said, it wasn't even implied, but it was just sort of there, and you kind of soaked it in that, you know, unless you were a Wisconsin Synod, you probably were going to be in hell because we had everything right and everybody had everything wrong. We never taught that, um, but there was certainly well, a you didn't. sense of that. I might have. <laughs> coming out of um, the 60s and 70s, right? Um, of course, the only... <laughs> Actually, the Roman Catholic Church actually would, would teach this, not so right. much anymore. But, um, and so I kind of felt like I was already in the Benedict option, right? I was different. We lived in Southern California, and, you know, it just, you never talked about religion. I assumed everybody was atheist. They weren't, right? They weren't, not, not even close. Um, but I had that kind of what we've called uh, fortress mentality a little bit. So... It was weird for me becoming pastor to then have that sort of, you know, I mean, reverend means revered, right? That was odd. And it was a good thing for me to say this is an office beyond me and to use that, to, to, to use that wisely, right? Um, you could see how it could be abused. Um, but you could also see how people could downplay the office. And say, oh, shucks, I'm just a regular. No, dude, you are, they're coming to you. You're called to a very holy office, yeah. Like, in, and they're coming to you and they're listening to you precisely because of that. Otherwise, they completely ignore you. So if you're going to push that aside and just be judged on your personality, you're probably, you, you, you've lost an opportunity here because they weren't going to pay attention to you, right? So stop the, oh, shucks thing. Um, so I do believe going forward, that there is still going to be reverence for the so-called holy man of God, right? It is how are we going to use that? Are we going to use that as a as a hammer, as a law? Right. Um, Peter well, Brown, the historian of late antiquity, that holy man of God brings to mind some of his works from that time period, and I think there's a good insights to be gained from that. But go ahead. Uh, or are we going to try to be a, so assimilated by the culture that we're just the regular schmo, right? And then we become indistinguishable between the culture, and that's when the cultural Christianity is swallowed up by whatever, and it, it's, it's no longer even existent, right? Or nothing worth even remembering, which I think for a lot of people is where they're already at, right? Or are you going to do the, I'm just going to, like you said, the Benedict option where I'm going to be my, I'm going to be as weird as I possibly can, which I think is a huge threat right now, uh, where you do have a lot of congregations and pastors who are going to double down on whatever going to make them feel like they are going to have a here I stand moment. And, and here, you know, is... It could be private confession. It right. could be this or whatever. Now, now And here Luther's critique critiques of monasticism are very important because he warns about the danger of abandoning your neighbor by withdrawing from her or him right. in such a way. So, uh, I mean, and, and I could be accused of that too because I made a big stink about certain things. Although I think there are things that you're worth dying for. One of them for me is access to the means of grace by, for the people. Sure. And what I mean by that is we're all for Holy Communion. Right. We teach private confession. 
we um, we have first order proclamation instead of just preaching about the gospel. I mean, those those are things I'm willing to make a stink about, but I'm not willing to make a stink about masks. I'm not willing to make a stink about uh, the difference between. Is that because you're a Marxist? Yeah, between private and and corporate confession, right? I mean, I will be theologically detailed about that, but I am not going. To, I am not going to pick something where I am going to make a huge deal about so that I can feel pretty darn important about my here I stand moment. And uh, which becomes law driven because now you're self justified. And I become the victim, and so I play into this, you know, the leftover of postmodern literary power structure thought where um, I'm only valuable and right if I'm the victim rather than the oppressor, right? So I, I it, unwittingly, the cultural Christianity that was dominant now wants to become the victim because that's the dominant way of thinking about what is right and wrong in our, in our culture. And it's kind of pathetic when you think about it, right? So we, I know I have publicly a few times said, we got to stop this martyrdom act. Stop it. I mean... Uh, you know, and I, I said this to our, our, my Pauline epistles class. I'm like, I don't know about you, but here, here's the three or four or five point sermon that I heard over and over and over again. Jesus loves you. You're supposed to love Jesus. You haven't always loved Jesus, but he does love you. Now go tell people about Jesus. But just so you know, it's going to be very difficult because everybody hates Jesus and you for loving Jesus. It's just not true. And it certainly wasn't a motivated, good motivation for spreading the, the good news of Christ. And just this martyrdom complex that we grew up with largely was not an attack on the gospel. It was an attack on a shallow cultural Christianity. And here I think is a very important point. When we feel that we are being attacked by the secular world, 99.99999% of the time, it is an attack on some stupid, shallow, uninformed message of Christianity that has been put out there. To which most of it you and I would go, yeah, I don't like that Christianity any more than, than, than you, dear atheists, do. Rarely ever is there an attack on the gospel itself, at least in our age and on our time. And partly because, of, because we don't really put the gospel out there very clearly as a church. Um, but I have never had Nancy Pelosi or Schumer or, you know, any, pick, your, pick your boogeyman from the, from the Christian right say, I totally disagree with uh, the gospel message of Jesus of Nazareth. They may, but they've never attacked. What they have attacked is uh, Christian camps that try to, you know, revert people who are homosexual back into, they are going to attack, they're going to attack a unloving, um, uh, whatever, you know, an, an un anti-science <laughs> movement. They are going to attack things that I may, I may disagree with them, but it's never really about the actual gospel itself. So what they are attacking often is a cultural Christianity. And a lot, not always, but a lot of times I go, yeah, I kind of want to see that cultural Christianity die. And here's why. Because then we're actually forced to think about our confession. Then we actually have to be confessional. Then we actually have to be more than an inch deep. 
and, and a, a Christianity that becomes coercive culturally, um, which means it's law-driven, doesn't make Christians, and at the same time alienates, probably um, turns people away from an openness to hear the, the gospel in the first place. Maybe, the megachurch pastor is bad for the cause in the long run. Right. We don't need Oprah's and Dr. Phil's. And, and the guy, I mean, you, you, the, the, it's a punchline, right? The guy who is talking about morality and then slips out the back door into his private jet, you know? Um, <clears throat> this cheapness is getting, Christianity is made fun of for reasons that it should get made fun of in America. So, dear preacher, when you get up and say, oh, people are going to make fun of you because you, um, you know, you are, are believe in Jesus, but stay strong. I think more accurately is Christianity gets made fun of because it does stuff that's worthy of being made fun of. Rarely, if ever, are you going to have a conversation seriously about the gospel. And if you do, and you are, if you are deep enough to hold your own in that conversation to this rare, very, you know, aggressive atheist, almost guarantee that atheist is actually going to respect you for having an opinion and, and, and having a conversation with you. So the, the mile-long, inch-deep, megachurch, book for fourteen ninety nine at Barnes & Noble about spirituality, there's going to be a reckoning here because it's often very white. It's often very middle class. It's often prosperity gospel. It's often uh, leans Republican, not always. It is uh, extremely shallow. It tries to get itself into politics and culture, but can't quite get deep into politics or culture because it's not its realm. And uh, it's, worthy, it's, it's worthy of the jokes, right. quite frankly. And, and I would just, um, a couple of thoughts maybe in that regard. I would say there are times that maybe Christians are taken to task for um, things that are at their core Christian things. So I'm, I'm disagreeing a little bit, but not with your core point. Um, I would say, though, it's often because their focus or the reason they're in the press or whatever it might be on that issue um, is putting them before a people who have not known the church as a place defined by the gospel, but only defined by the law, and have and the presentation being made regarding whatever that Christian thing might be, plays into a caricature that is very well deserved. And I think that's largely what you're saying as well, Mike, is mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, that cultural Christianity presents a caricature of Christianity um, that leads people with hubris to reject it because they think they know what Christianity is and actually deprives them of the ability to understand Christianity. For instance, when it comes to sexual sin, which of course um, I am against sexual sin, um, but if that's largely what people know the church for, well, why do you want to be in my bedroom? And they don't understand that law concern when done right is rooted in the gospel, that we don't want someone going to hell and we want them um, to confess their sins and be absolved, that absolution is the end goal. Why should people give us a hearing? And so when there's all these campaigns that are started um, that don't get beyond the law and the caricature, um, why should the church get a hearing? <clears throat> it makes it much more difficult. And so I think that is where, as you mentioned, we, we need less shallow platitudinal Christianity 
And we need more catechesis, an ability not to enter discourse with sound bites, but to say, actually, I can explain that, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, another point I want to get at is, and uh, Dave Zoll's seculosity is very good for this too, um, is that when we say cultural Christianity is dying off, we ought not think um, that the American public is becoming non-religious. Religion hasn't gone anywhere. All you have to do is go on Twitter or watch cable news and realize uh, that few things are as religious as the state. Why did people get so upset about if people knelt or not for the national anthem? Mm -hmm. It's because we've sacralized the national anthem, and so we have a concern with what religious posture should be taken in regard to There's it. There's always a liturgy. And that posture became a confession of one's stance over and against the state. And Sabbath, too. And both of those are religious stances. There is the legal stance um, that uh, sometimes rightly, sometimes not rightly, is going to uh, um, say the state as not being a good enough God. Right? It's not doing everything it should, and so we need to legislate. We need to legally change things. And there's going to be those who say, how dare you attack our God, and we need to impose laws to keep people from uh, blasphemy towards it. <clears throat> uh, if, if we truly um, did not think uh, the state were a religious concept, we would not need to pass nearly as many laws as we pass. Right? You can't keep up with all the law books on a local, state, or federal level. Um, and in many ways, many of these laws are a way to try to purify the state, to purify our um, political religion. And this leads to an apocalypticism. And we see this apocalypticism um, within Christianity as well when Christians on the political left or the right um, somehow... Uh, identify with the eschaton or the end of the world or the end of at least something that gives the world meaning and purpose um, with either the continuation of a political party or um, the uh, um, ascension of a rival party or of a political movement so that things take on a, uh, a tone. Um, they take on an existential personal um, angst, anxiety, and in a Kierkegaardian sense, um, that they would not have if one had a true hope rooted in a true eschatology grounded in the gospel, right? The criticism of Christianity um, as Rome kind of began to wane, Edward Gibbons and others said it was because Christianity took their, fa their focus, took Christians' focus off the civil religion and Rome is the eternal city and put it on the next life. Well, I think we need to, as Christians and as Americans, step back and ask if we don't see um, that happening in reverse now, that now as um, the church in many ways has abandoned the gospel and the culture is... Um, has little understanding of it or of forgiveness and mercy even as concepts anymore if we don't see um, the state as becoming the eternal city of the Rome um, with its own eschatological or end times uh, um, narrative. And, and this, is, this is very dangerous. And we hear Christians say if this person gets elected or this person doesn't, that's the end. Right. Or we'll hear people say, if my person doesn't win, America deserves to burn. Right. 
Um, or on the left, I'm leaving Canada. Right. right? A very eschatological way of looking um, at it. Or on the right, I've heard people say, I'm moving to Mexico, which is ironic to me because I thought we were building a wall. But um, the, uh, this is very dangerous. And if we find ourselves thinking in these ways, talking in these ways, we have to ask ourselves, where is our faith really resting? Where is the gospel in this? Where is Christ? Christ does not cease to be Christ because of any election or policy change. And when we lose sight of him, we lose the ability to be salt and light in the culture and in society. And so I would propose that in many ways, the death of cultural Christianity ought to be for the church opportunity. That we, we've labored so long to hold up this cultural precipice that we can maybe be freed from that and having to play a part, play a role, having to be, uh, as the existentialists might say, inauthentic. Mm -hmm. and that we can be authentically Christian, neither by withdrawing entirely from the culture, although there may be aspects in which we simply cannot participate, but also um, by not investing the culture with some eschatological or um, uh, justifying um, value and purpose so that we can then, at the end of the day, just be salt and light, as I would argue Jesus and Paul and others were and strove to be. Um, anything, am I off my rock or mic? No, or you go. I, why don't you, we got a few minutes left. You got anything from, uh, from the article that you missed that you want to bring up? Cause no, and Jack hits on a lot of these points, um, and so I don't want to, um, uh, you know, uh, some of my thought obviously is going to be owed to him, although I think in many ways Jack and I have been reading um, similar uh, sources. Um, I think a point he brings out well is that either the state becomes God or people become God. Yeah. Right? Either the state becomes God, and he says in a Hobbesian sense, is that it's, it's what, in like a Near Eastern religion, the state is what takes this world of chaos and gives it order. Mm-hmm. So it becomes like a Near Eastern God. Um, or it becomes, uh, the human becomes God, and the state stands in the way of it. So, for instance, in Marxist thought, right, the state is keeping the worker from realizing his or her full potential. And I think we see both of those streams of thought in our own day, whether it be the, the anti-fascist, anti-racist, anti-whatever, you know, 18 emojis in their Twitter handle or whatever you call it, um, that says burn it all down, mm-hmm. or the one who, um, big government approach, let's, we need the state more than ever, let's pass these laws to make it happen. Um, and in both both cases, we, we lose we lose sight of the true God. And uh, if you wanna go back to episode 141, uh, uh, we talked about this. Uh, Pastor Clout and Benj Lorenz came on, and we talked about cultural liturgies. And and I listened to that while I was in Michigan because I hadn't listened to that one. Yeah. And you know what my one big pet peeve with it what? was? What? what did you keep saying in there? I don't know. Augustine. Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> didn't I say Augustine just for Justin's Justin? Justin corrected that was you once, but then you went right back. That was to that was the the previous one on the road with Saint Augustine. I agreed to say Augustine. Okay. But anyway, everybody's got a god. Everybody's got a liturgy. Um, and if, if, if you're going to pull God out of the equation, there's going to be a vacuum that occurs. So what we're saying here is the cultural Christianity for a lot of people, more people than I think we'd like to admit, um, their God is something different than the God of the Bible. It maybe is a, a civic kind of God. 
it may be the uh, kind of uh, what we've called deistic uh, therapeutic moralism. I got that mixed up, but uh, th that that kind of concept, this this God who is who's just sort of looking over as a benevolent kind of God, and that that the idea of a church out there is nice. I'll even give my money and offerings to it and make myself, uh, I, I will avail myself of it in certain circumstances, a wedding, a Christmas, or whatever. I'll even put my kids into that because I, I believe that's a good grounding for them when it comes to their virtue. But that's as far as it goes, right? And that is a, a, a weak God. Now, I believe that there's a reckoning that eventually occurs because that week of a culture can't stand, can't stand harsh attacks. Right. For instance, an existential threat like um, radical Islam. Right. An existential threat like... Um, pandemic. A pandemic. Uh, a threat like, um, <clears throat> I would say, s some of the postmodern philosophies, some of the philosophies that come out of that postmodern uh, mindset, um, which would attack truth which then gets into, uh, do we trust science? Do we trust the government? Do we trust the media? Or power as the primary lens, which leads to never-ending struggle, right. and everybody shifts victim status so they can reclaim power. So can a cultural Christianity be strong enough to fight off these threats and survive? I kind of think no. And as we look forward to this reckoning, perhaps we're at the beginning of this reckoning right now, um, you and I sort of kind of welcome it. Maybe the church stats go down, right? The average number of people that are in church on Sunday morning, which was always kind of a dubious thing to look at faith anyway, um, <clears throat> that maybe the stats are going to change, right? But that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? And so I'm hoping that the church can pull itself out of this, you know, here's the latest from, from, uh, from Pew, right? Here's the latest stats of people who claim to be Christian, who are nuns or whatever. And N-O-N-E-S. Uh, yes. And just get rid of all of that market-driven garbage and start actually thinking about confessing something. What was very dangerous. Which the market-driven stuff is about as cultural as it gets in the right. American setting. Right. Where and we, everything is market-based. What was dangerous about this um, is that the people who push that in our own circles, right, who, who push, let's look at these things, and I'm not saying we don't look at them, whatever, but we are going to react then to the, st to the statistics, to, to putting our finger up into the cultural winds, right? They become, first of all, become very narrow focused and don't see big picture, but also they assumed that we had done everything right it's just that we needed to tweak our marketing a little bit. We assumed that we were very that, that we were giving access to the means of grace. We were assuming that our gospel preaching was clear. We were assuming that we were not a shallow cultural Christianity. We assumed that we had it. The message wasn't the problem. How many times did you hear this? The message isn't the problem. It just whatever. And, and the the irony of that is that the glory days number wise were extremely cultural. 
people were coming over and joining their our churches mm -hmm. because they spoke that language mm -hmm. or shared those cultural values. And then they had a bunch of big families because that's culturally, especially in an agricultural-based society, what you did. Right. So that was a huge assumption from, let's say, previous generations to ours. I mean, I heard it a million times. We have the message. Everything's good. We just need to, like, tweak something just to tweak this one thing. We need the right amount of money. We need the right amount. We need the right worship, the right leadership, whatever. That's still kind of with us. So we just need to tweak this one thing. And I think both of you and I are saying there's a reckoning going on here that we need to actually be thoughtful, confessional Christians. And, and things may get blown up here, and it may not be actually the worst thing for Christianity. And the, the last one standing is always going to be Christ. Yeah. And we need to remember that. The last one standing will always be Christ. And so if our fear doesn't drive us deeper into Christ, who came to be Savior of sinners of whom I am chief, then we're in a very big, we're in a lot of trouble. But the second last standing we would agree would be America, right? <laughs> right, because nations come and go except America, right? right? I think that was... I think that God is what was, most of the Psalms are about. Right. The Psalms are about all these nations come and go until there's going to be America. Right. And that one's going to stay for longer than everybody right. else. And then there's going to be a party, a political party that is and going football. to. Yep, and football. So I think we should be done before we get ourselves <laughs> into too much more trouble. Hey, come back and uh, come and listen to uh, section number eight. Or well, and I think looking at eight. these, Mike, we're going to have to talk. I think we might combine some sure. because we uh, there's a few of these that could roll in together and hit on themes we've just hit on. So um, we'll see what we pick up with. We might not have 11 points. I think we might kind of combine, do one more or whatever. Um, we might jump to something else. We'll see. Um, but I, th my, I think as I look at this more, after seven, there's less clear distinction between the points than there were in the previous ones. Let's try to get to 10 because that's a good number. We'll, we'll see, see though. Yeah, we'll see. But we hope that you'll come back. Until then, let the bird fly. You keep saying that lately, by the way. You don't let me say it anymore. Okay. Until then, Wade, what should they do? Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get in my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up, another round. I set him up, another round. I set him up, another round. One more round won't get me down.